The following message was recorded at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oviedo, Florida. Covenant is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, a community committed to seeing the gospel deeply rooted in our lives and in the lives of our neighbors in the Oviedo area. We welcome you to visit us on Sunday mornings in Oviedo or anytime online at cpcoviedo.com. Our sermon text this morning is Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants and the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let's pray together. Father, you have been kind to us, and part of that kindness is in giving to us your word. You're not silent. You have spoken. Um, You've spoken what can be known and what needs to be known. And so, Father, we pray that through this, through your word, you would cause us to delight in you, to delight in this word so that through the encouragement of these scriptures, we might have hope. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we trust in the work of the Holy Spirit to make it so. Amen. I was once again reminded um, this week, I don't have my glasses on, so I'm preaching to many blurs. There you go. Hi. Hi. They'll come off again in a second. But I I was reminded this week, as I frequently am, that I've put some years behind me. Um, So, Brianne, I'm sorry I'm going to have to loop you into this. But I offered to Brianne some DVDs uh, uh, to watch. She stared at me. (laughs) It's not that she didn't know what a DVD was, but I looked at her and I said, you don't have any way to play a DVD, do you? Uh, a DVD, a, particularly a DVD player, is becoming an artifact of the past. 
And I realized, wow, I've come through a lot of stuff. I say that because there are other things that I think have become an artifact of the past, and we need to perhaps lament that. Um, I don't say this to sound super spiritual, but when I was young, I carried one of these to church. Y'all know what this is, right? <laughs> it's a book. It's a book we call the Bible. Uh, books are artifacts in some respects. Um, and, you know, we don't do that much anymore. And I understand why um, I have been challenged. Eva has challenged me directly to make sure that I read what I'm preaching on out of this book so that you are visually reminded that I, to, as much as I can, I'm not trying to make this stuff up out of whole cloth. Um, but, you know, there's a value in physically actually looking at the words themselves. <laughs> so if you have such an artifact available this morning, I do want you to open to Revelation 10. Now, those of you who are sitting there saying, well, I don't have one of those. I want you to take out your phones. You don't hear preachers say this, but I want you to stare at it. Um, you know, if you don't have a Bible on your phone, there's one, you know, download it. Um, it will, I promise you, though it's a big book, it will not make your phone heavier, okay? It, you'll still be able to keep, you know, keep it in your pocket or wherever. And I want you to, to do that, and I want you to find your way over to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 10. Um, what's interesting about this text to me, Elizabeth has already alluded to it, is it really does talk about, to some degree, our relationship with this text, with this book, uh, with the words from God. And uh, I want us to think about how we ourselves interact with and come to deal with this book. I cannot change you. I can put ideas in your head, but you're free to toss those ideas out wherever you want to toss them. Um, but we are looking at a book that comes to us with a far greater sense of authority than my words ever could convey. So I want to ask you a different question. While you're finding Revelation 10 on your phone or in your Bible or wherever, did you have dinner last night? I'm going to assume that you did. Uh, I want you to think about what did that dinner look like? Did that dinner look like this? You all took a chair, you sat in a row, and your mom or dad or somebody else stood in front of you and explained food to you. I mean, maybe they did it very articulately, then for spent 30 minutes explaining to you the wonders of food. The onion is a remarkable thing. Uh, or maybe... Maybe they even put together some pictures for you. The onion is a remarkable thing. It, whatever. That's not what dinner looks like. If it is, it's no wonder you're snacking later. Uh, but when you sit for a meal, how you do that and what you do while you sit at that meal matters. Just as it matters here. You know, I am dishing stuff out to you. But man, you've got to pick it up, and you've got to take it. You know, sometimes we have no appetite, and so eating is a drudgery. Um, and sometimes, you know, 
some people come to a physical state of their lives where the food that they eat comes from a bottle or a can, and the joy of it disappears. But the joy of eating, ultimately, the joy of it is sitting before the food, tasting the food, and looking up at those who are with you and saying, this is good. And I'm sad that so many of us miss that experience. Anyway, I have chattered on and on to make sure you all could get to Revelation 10. So, if you're there, we're going to think about why this text is important. The book of Revelation is not a book that talks about what's going to happen so many years from now. The book of Revelation is a book that really is addressing some of the most critical questions that we face. What's life all about? How will it all end? What am I to do? How am I to live? What am I to believe? And this book gives you many of those answers. And so we come to it because of what God reveals. He reveals what can at least in part be known so that you as Christians can confidently know and act in the time that you're given. So let's begin to consider that. The, the first thing that this text suggests is that there are things, as Elizabeth pointed out, that we are not supposed to know. And that can seem kind of counterintuitive to what I have just been saying. There are some things that can be known, but uh, people are not to know them. Okay, so that's frustrating, but let's get over it. John is recording here visions that God gave him. And he has spoken thus far, if you've tracked with me, of, you know, of a scroll that had seven seals on it. And, and six of those seals were broken. And every one time that seal was opened up, there was some revelation of judgment. But between the sixth and seventh seal, there, there was an interlude. There was a pause. And John was given two uh, separate visions. Then the seventh seal was opened up, which introduced seven trumpets. And so thus far, as we've worked through the text, there have been six trumpets blown. And with each trumpet blown, there has been a revelation of some kind of judgment. Do you see the, there's a repetition, there is a pattern here. And now we are at the end of the sixth trumpet, and there is now an interlude, a pause, in which there are two more visions given to John. This pattern, this repetitive pattern, suggests what many interpreters believe that these visions here in this, these chapters of Revelation were not meant to be sequential, that this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens, you know, through 14 different things, but that they both are giving a picture, a way of understanding an overlapping period. They overlap each other, and they're addressing what life is like and what life is to be like and how we are to understand life between when Jesus came in the first time at Christmas and when he'll come at the end of time. The important thing is that these things are written for us. These things are not written for some future person. These things are written for you, and they're written for me. And so the first of these visions, these two visions in this interlude, centers around this massive angel who conveys a rather imposing divine presence. Okay, chapter 10 of Revelation, verse 1. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, excuse me, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. Oh, <laughs> um, go back, uh, the slides, go back one, yeah, that's what you were supposed to see, okay, why, because you don't need to read it up there, right, you've got it on your lap right now but I'll put it up there anyway. Um, you know, I, I don't want you to cheat if you can help it. All right, this is a mighty angel. 
And the features of this angel suggest a divine presence in some way. Some want to say, well, this was the Christ. No, there's no reason to believe that. But the rainbow, the cloud, the fire, the pillars of fire that were the legs do speak of some sense of a divine presence here. Now we go on reading in verse 2. He had a little scroll open in his hands. This is apparently a massive angel and a tiny little scroll of some kind, a small book. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. All right, so you can see it again. Um, I know some of us have a rebel's heart. You know, we resist doing what we're told, and I'm telling you to look at it in the Bible, and you, I'm not going to do that. Well, you know, it's important, so I really want to encourage you to keep doing it. Anyway, the first image here conveys this divine presence, and then is added to it this sense of divine authority. Uh, we see this picture of this creature, this angel, with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land, don't picture some guy standing at the edge over here on, at, at Cocoa Beach, you know, with one foot there in the water lapping around. This is a massive picture. Um, and, and, and the point here with a, land, with a foot on the sea and a foot on the land would appear to be that there is nowhere you can go where you escape his authority, whether it's in the sea or anywhere on land. Uh, that which is being conveyed here is coming from one whose authority covers all. And then the angel speaks, and he speaks as one roaring. And if you look at verse 3, it goes on. I'm sorry. Yes, when he called out, verse 3, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. <laughs> uh, but... I heard a voice from heaven saying, do not write it down. Seal up what the seven thunders have said, pardon me, and do not write it down. I think that this sense of divine presence, you know, notice that the voice was like thunder. There was a deep resonance, the kind of resonance that says, sit up, take notice, listen to what I have to say which then makes this whole thing kind of puzzling because then it says, don't write it down. You know, whatever was heard in this deep resonant voice by John was clearly understandable because John understood it sufficiently that he was going to write it down. If it was massively unintelligible, I think we would just have a picture of John staring up into heaven and says, can you repeat that? You know, I don't get it. No, he got it. And he was going to write it down. And God said, don't. That seems senseless to us. But there's a lesson to be learned here. That there are things that can be known. That are capable of being known. But which God in wisdom believes it best we do not know. And as arrogant human beings, we do not like that. God, you know it. You have a responsibility to tell us. God, you know these things. We can understand it. Give it to us. We believe that God needs to tell us everything. And because of that, some of us then come to the Bible and we spend inordinate amount of energy and time and effort 
to unpack things that aren't even there. As if it's a puzzle that if we spend enough time trying to put the pieces together, we will figure it out. Do you know what the three hardest words are? Yeah, the three hardest words might be, I forgive you. (laughs) But another set of three hard words is, I don't know. And especially as teachers, we don't like to say, I don't know. But there are things that you do not know that could be known, but God is not telling you. What is that? Wasn't it curious we asked that question? God has just said, you are not to know these things. Gee, what is it, God, I'm not supposed to know? Tell me. Um, we can't help ourselves. What is this stuff that we're not supposed to know? Maybe the the time of Jesus' return. Uh, Maybe the time of the end of our pilgrimage on earth, the time of our death. I, I don't know, but there are things that, you know, when we come to this wall where we say, I just cannot figure it out. I can't understand why God, and fill in the blank, Maybe we're not meant to know that. There are things that are known to a sovereign God, to the one whose feet less rest on the sea and on the land, but he has chosen to keep that information hidden from us for wisdom that is his alone and that we might in faith trust him and say, nevertheless, you who control the wind and the land and the seas, you will see to its proper outcome even if I don't know what that outcome is. Who will respond to the gospel? Why do hard things happen? Who who is that cute girl in the last row, and am I supposed to marry her? You know, questions that we don't know the answer to. But when we take the whole picture together, the wisdom here is to trust the sovereign God and to know that he is good, and he will see his purposes through. And we want to dig into the Bible. We want to dig into our scriptures but not to try to know things that are not to be known. So let's come at this with a sense of humility. I've challenged you to open your Bible in your laps, but you come to this book with some humility, seeking to know what God wants you to know and not the things that we're not meant to know. At least we hope that that is your approach because there are things that have been made known here that we are to know for certain. And that's really the second point that is conveyed here. Let's go back to the text. John's vision moves forward. Um, in, in verse 5, we read this, The angel whom, uh, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is, is, and, and what is in it. I mean, think about it. This is an angel with a rainbow around his head and clouds around his waist and his legs are pillars of fire. I mean, we would be tempted to believe anything that this thing might say to us, but he raises his hand and swears to heaven that what he is saying is going to be true to challenge us to say, believe this. You know, when an angel swears an oath, I would think that we would take note of it. And so he says that there will be no more delay but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. In essence, if I may condense that, what the angel is saying is all the stuff you've heard from the prophets, Old Testament and New, it's going to be true. It's going to come true. 
if it has not already come true. There is nothing standing in its way of being true. Again, that's verse 7. The mystery of God, that the mystery of God, that the truth of God, that the revelation of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. All the purposes of God that you might read, think about, hear, understand, both Old Testament and New, will be fulfilled and there is nothing standing in its way which will cause delay in God's timetable. Nothing will delay that which God has promised to do. So let's step back from that for a second. You know, here is this stuff You know, there's stuff that we are not to know. And there is important stuff that we are to know. And it it is so important that it be known that God sent an angel who would swear to its truthfulness. Um, I think we're not supposed, therefore, to get lost in the biblical weeds and ignore that which is made plain. That would seem to be obvious, but sadly it's not. Yeah, we believe what the prophets have said. We believe that they speak to truth, the truth. But there are times we are prone to disbelieve it all when the actions of God do not match the expectations we have of Him. Now, if we put ourselves in the shoes of these churches for whom uh, John was originally conveying this vision... Here, they had lived at a time where they expected Jesus' return at any moment. And what happens when our expectations are not matched with reality? We begin to question the one who, who created those expectations. And the angel was saying, there will be no delay, but it is God's timetable. It is God's timing in all of this. When our expectations do not play out in the way we anticipate them. Doubt is created. Whether it is, I am coming soon, or the Lord is my shepherd. No matter what the affirmation is, when things do not work out the way we understand and think those are supposed to work out, doubt is created. There ought to be no doubt. There is no delay in God's purposes. We need to listen to what we are told, embrace what we are told, and believe what we find in the Bible's teaching. Yeah. That which has been declared will be fulfilled, so we can live confidently within that. You know, uh, we have just come through the Christmas season, and I'm not going to turn back here. I'm not going to make you guys go flipping around and try to get to Isaiah. But just listen for a second. You know, there back in Isaiah 7, there was a a statement, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Uh, Yeah, right, a virgin's going to bear a son. (laughs) Um, This is the point where the pastor thinks of a joke that he should say and thinks better of it. You can ask me later. Um, But a virgin shall bear us, and you know, certainly expectations would be raised, and people begin to think this isn't going to happen, this cannot happen, and then suddenly a virgin conceives a child and bears a son who's named Emmanuel. 
We are to believe the things that the prophets foretold. And so we can also believe in Isaiah when it says this, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. You who are working in missionary efforts and you are whittling away at little progress, little bits and pieces, this is the promise that you're working towards that there will come a day when all the nations will flock to the mountain of the Lord. Your work will have success. You will not see it. Not now. But we can believe. We can certainly know that which is told. We were also promised in Isaiah 53 that there would be a lamb who would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace would be upon him, and with his wounds we are healed. And that, has, that sat for hundreds of years without fulfillment, and then Jesus, as he hung on the cross, fulfilled that on your behalf. That the judgment that would be upon you, the unpleasantness that would be upon you, the, 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 the condemnation that was yours because of sin was taken away. It was promised, it came to pass. And so we, we read that the earth will be filled in Habakkuk with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We need not doubt it. There are things we are to believe in this book. Find them, revel in them, rest in them. Um, you know, and and we, sometimes what we need to be brought back to that is a vision of a giant angel with one foot on the Atlantic Ocean and another foot in Oviedo saying that nothing in time or space can in, interfere with the unfolding plan of God in history. And so therefore we ought to live our lives according to what we've been told. No, more than that, we ought to be excited and thrilled to come into this book and say, what is it here, God, in which, that you have given to me? What can I delight in? What can I hope in? Delight yourself in God. I was telling Elizabeth, I was reading that this morning. Again, Psalm 37. Um, delight yourself in God. Delight yourself in God and He will make straight your path. He will set you on the path that will lead you to the greatest satisfaction that you can imagine. These are the things you're to take to heart and to know for certain. So these two points here, I think, portray what for me at times is a sad picture. If we think of a church at, at large, um, we have uh, churches, you know, all over America who are arguing about when Jesus is going to come back, arguing about what that's going to look like, are, you know, spending all kinds of time trying to figure out things that perhaps we're not really being told. And yet, the, the also curious thing is that, especially evangelical churches in America, uh, slowly and slowly, and slow, but, but definitely have reduced the amount of time that is spent in worship actually reading the Bible. So we, we major in some puzzling things and we neglect the obvious things. And I don't want us to be that. But I want us to move positively in this direction that there are things that are known that Christians are to make known to others. Hey, I just saw a hopeful sign, okay? I feel like I've been at this a long time, so I glanced up at the clock and the clock's gone. That's a sign from heaven. <laughs> All right, maybe not. <laughs> I'm having too much fun with this. Go back to Revelation 10. 
There are three voices in this text. They're quickly going to put the clock back up, and they're going to spin it back and say, you're done. Uh, No, they're not. But there are three voices in this text. There's John, there's the angel, and then there is this voice from heaven, which we've already alluded to being the voice of God himself. So if we look at verse 8, then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So again, I said there's this giant angel with what's told, you know, this tiny book in his hand, and this is not the scroll that the, you know, the, 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 lamb, uh, the, who, the, the lamb who looked as if he had been slain alone and all creation could open up. No, this is another book, a little scroll. It's open and unsealed. What is written in this book is not made clear in this text, but you know, in, in as much as it's in the hand of an angel who has come down from God, the implication is this is the word of God. This is a word from God, possibly representative of the Bible itself. And that's why I'm making such a big deal about the Bible here. But it's curious then what the angel says to John. Uh, where were we? Verse 9. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. By the way, none of you should be looking at me right now, right? Caught you. Uh, And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. But John does it, even with that warning, and and he says, I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. (laughs) Don't eat your phones. Um, This is a parable. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Um, All right, so my job is to try to make the book sweet in your mouth, and I work hard at that. But the angel reminds us, and this vision reminds us, that sometimes it's going to be hard to take. And sometimes what we are to do with this word uh, can upset our stomachs or our lives. It's really a lived out parable, I think, what we have here. John is being asked to work through some motions to create a picture for us. Um, I don't think anybody, even those who say, we, I always take the Bible literally, have decided to take Bibles, cut them up in small pieces, and have church dinners where everybody eats the book. Okay, this is a parable for us. Um, and when, when there's any parable in the Bible, there's always some kind of explanation. And I think that's in verse 11. I was told, you must, again, prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is a word not only to John, but as he represents the church and conveys it to the church, it's a message to the whole church, to us. You must, again, prophesy. That is, do it again and again. And prophesy here not as some idea of telling the future, but rather prophesy as in announcing or declaring news about God. And there's just an interesting verbal thing here, if you can bear with me. If you go back to verse 7, I think it's fascinating the language that is chosen here to talk about how the prophets conveyed what they knew about God. Um, that we, we, we see in verse 7 that they declared the mystery of God just, or, or, or the angel is saying, 
that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he, that is God, announced to his servants the prophets. That announced, that's evangelize, the declaring of the good news. Um, you know, and we don't have time to dig into all of the language there, but, but the sense of the word and the truth about God is good news and it's good news that has importance for many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And that language itself we can see reiterated in various ways in the Gospels. In the end, the encouragement here and the call is for the church to continue the work of the prophets, to continue to make known what is to be known about God but maybe also to do it in a world that may continue to reject it. It is sweet in the mouth, but it is bitter at times in the stomach. How bitter it is to watch family and friends reject it. How bitter it is to see family and friends walk away from it. How bitter it is for us to find in something, you know, just terrible delight and others scorn it. Um, it's a trite illustration, but man, if I really like a book or, or a movie and I go to somebody and I say, I just really love that, and they say, I hated it. It was awful. It takes all the joy away from it. It was sweet in my mouth, but there was a bitterness attached as well. And we have a world that is lost and, and, and lost its way. We have a message to proclaim, and it's not going always to go well. But at the very least, the picture here is to be a people who take the word seriously, uh, such that we make it our own by belief, by study. We eat it. It's a dinner we consume with forks and knives and chopsticks, maybe, if we're not really hungry. <laughs> you know, we take it, we consume it, we eat it, we make it a part of ourselves. And then in the world around us, as we live out our lives in community and faithfulness and in our words and as we live as a church, we convey to the world the delight that we ourselves have in the meal and we invite others to come taste it. This is not something that is an individualistic thing, but this is spoken to the church functioning as a living body, a living community showing to a disconnected world what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like as he announced it through his prophets. And again, all of this opens up these wide vistas of vast application, which we can't explore uh, right now. But it is also one of the reasons why I am dovetailing our work through the book of Revelation with the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is very practical. Here's how you are to live as a community of God's people so that the world around you will see the truth that you believe and be drawn into it. They'll see what you're eating and they will want to share in the meal. We're a church. It's why we all need to be eating the same meal together. Um, you know, not just the parents, not just the kids, you know. All of us sitting at the same table, eating the same meal and taking the same delight in it, such that others may be drawn in to join us in the feast. So, there are things that can be known that people are not to know. And there are things that have been made known that we all are to know for certain. And there are things that are known that Christians are to make known to others. And all of this is overseen and rooted in the God who rules land and sea and commands peoples, nations, languages, and kings and us. It is him we serve, and it is sweet, but it can be bitter. But we do it. 
Ultimately, we do it because we love the one who gives it to us. And we, we do it because of the sweetness in our mouth. I don't understand. I don't understand why some reject what I find precious. But I know I love pizza. <laughs> and if you put pizza in front of me, I guarantee you something will happen. I will take two or three pieces beyond what I am allotted because sweet is the eating. It is one of God's gifts. And I want this book to be that way for you. Now, of course, with my pizza, later that night, I'll be saying, why, oh, why? There is a bitterness that comes. But man, it's the sweetness that leads us on. And I want you to know that sweetness. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. But thank you as well for the love that inhabits it. That this is a word spoken from a, heavenly, a loving Heavenly Father to a hungry, lost, and needy people. And I pray that we might receive it as such. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.